I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Zach Santucci. And we love to watch. We love to watch Blade 2 European Vacation. Hey, Zach. Hey. We finally got a new, improved Zach on the show. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I'm very, very happy about that. And it's okay to say because other Zach, even though he's been integral to this podcast, doesn't listen. Uh, But we're really to watch. (laughs) We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. And it's it's another summer double month for us. Two summers ago, we did a bunch of Lovecraft stuff because there's too much Lovecraft movies to contain one whole month. Uh, And then last summer, we did a horror remakes because we think some of them are unfairly maligned or dismissed. And as we started making that list, that list grew really sprawling. And uh, this, we're on our third week of what we are calling Mignola and Del Toro Go to Hollywood slash Blade Boy. Um, which is a kind of uh, unfocused look at Mignola, uh, Mike Mignola, and uh, Guillermo del Toro's work on their uh, – they're bringing a couple of comic book superheroes, quote-unquote superheroes, to life through the Blade movies and the Hellboy movies and a bunch of other stuff tangentially related to it as well or sometimes directly related, like the comic books that they – that originated them. Uh, and so we're in our third week. So previously, uh, two weeks ago, we covered kind of uh, both of those um, those directors' separate first entries into Hollywood, talking about uh, Del Toro's American debut with uh, Mimic, and uh, the f- and the first time uh, Mignola goes and does concept art for a movie with uh, Disney's a- animated. Uh, Atlantis, the Lost Empire. And then uh, last week we took a detour from both of them, but talked about a movie that was critical to setting the stage for a lot of episodes we're, we're going to do, but also a movie that needed to exist to get to where we are today. Uh, and that was Blade, directed by Stephen Norrington. Stephen Norrington was offered the chance to come back for Blade 2. He declined Um to work on other projects, which was, I guess, the career-ending League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which comes out a year after the movie we're going to talk about today. Um, but in, thankfully, for I think for all of us, uh, even though I, I really do like the original Blade, uh, they uh, Goyer and team enlist Del Toro, Guillermo Del Toro, to, to direct, and he gets some concept artwork from Mike Mignola, who then, uh, which kind of forms their partnership. So uh, this is a big one. This is, I, Peter, you've called this one of your top five movies of all time. Do you still, oh, do you yeah. still feel that way? Oh, yeah. Um, some of it is is the fact that this was like 
a uh, seam a sort of seamless uh, transition for me into being a big horror movie fan because I watched mm-hmm. it when I was very young. Some of it is uh, it's like kind of the birthplace of me being a del- huge Del Toro fan. Like this was really my intro to Del Toro, um, and the rest is just because it kicks ass. Like it's just one of the movies that's like mo- so thoroughly watchable. It was a movie that we would come home after the bar in college and watch. It was something like when I needed like some comfort later on, and was like, but I didn't really want to watch a comedy like. I wanted something that was just like really like chewy um, and punchy. Uh, I would usually pick this as as like a sort of comfort movie, um, which is very funny with how gross it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we are joined by first time guest of the show. Somehow, um, Peter and he, he sent us a fan email in 2016, <laughs> and it took us five years to respond. Uh, no, but we, we've known Zach for as long or if, uh, if Peter and I have known each other, if not uh, longer. Um, and I remember uh, very early when we were way more active on the Facebook Dissolve group, uh, you two specifically uh, bonding over Blade 2. So as we finally got back to Zach and realized what a giant mistake it's been to never invite him on this show, uh, we realized we had the perfect movie uh, coming up that we knew that he had an affinity for. So, Zach, thank you so much for, A, uh, st- st- the four-year uh, – well, first, apologies for the four-year delay. I want to <laughs> underline Peter manages all of our social media accounts. Uh, <laughs> we're vampires, and five years is really just not that much time. Yeah, we're kind of – we're in a Whistler situation, right? Like, <laughs> is it months? Is it years? Uh, but thank you so years. much – <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience and say why you want to come talk about uh, Blade as well? Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, I'm Zach. I wanted to talk about Blade too because it is, I believe, among my top one favorite movies. Oh. Um, <laughs> and it's it's one of those things where it's just like there was a period where legitimately it was my favorite movie. And then it just became part of, I guess, my brand. And I think you get to an age where you don't really come up with new favorite movies, really. You know, you're just you're like, I'm an adult. I don't need favorite movies anymore. So I just I just kept it that way. And I I think I think it holds up. I think I'm okay with that. Uh, Part of that is because I had a tremendous theatrical experience. It was it was the best theatrical experience of my life seeing Blade 2 opening weekend. Um, and I think I'll we'll get into that as I as I talk about the movie, um, but that is that is the origin of me loving Blade Two. There was a period in college. Uh, Pete just reminded me. I just said Pete. Do you go Pete or Peter? Pete's fine. Yeah, he cool. goes by Pete. I exclusively call him Peter. That's cool. Like- That's the only only time I ever heard his name said out loud is uh, <laughs> via you talking to him on this podcast. So I, was, <laughs> I just want to make sure. I always jump to nicknames, and then I get, I realize I have to ask. Uh, <laughs> Aaron and my mom are like the only people that call me Peter, but I really don't care. Cool. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So you saw this in theaters. Can I, we're going to back up a little bit and go a little bit back to the original Blade, even though we talked about it exclusively last week. Had you seen that? Were you like, because uh, we talked about how into like that came out. Um, Zach, I don't know how old you are. I know Peter and I have about seven years between us. Um, the first Blade came out when I was 15. That was like a pre-Matrix movie. Actually rewatching it, Peter and I were surprised at how much stuff, uh, you know, from bullet vision to yeah. like this kind of like urban, like uh, glossy, staid, urban, techno like metallic noir or something. Yeah, it felt very yeah. proto-Matrixy. And so like as a 15-year-old, it hit me everywhere I wanted to be hit. 
And so I was I saw this opening weekend too. I was I was super primed for. It. So where were you at? Were, did you already have an affinity and were psyched for the sequel? Um yeah, I, I liked the first Blade. Uh, it was pretty good, you know. I uh, I just had a friend that was like, "Hey, let's go see Blade 2. I really want to see it." And I was like, "Yeah, I'll see that. I like the first one." Uh, but it wasn't a uh, like I wasn't amped. I was just kind of going along with the flow. And I think part of it also what I realized when watching Blade 2 in the theater uh, this time. So we saw it at City Place in in Silver Spring, downtown Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, which the demographics have changed a little bit over the time. But back in 2001, when I was like 16, 17, uh, me and my friend and another couple on a date in a packed house were the only white people in the theater. And it was as like Wesley Snipes action star, mainstream action star, post, you know, white men can't jump. He's not really playing quote unquote black characters. He's just being put into yeah. an action script most of the time. And it was the first time where I just saw an audience re- react so positively to his blackness on screen and that being like a, a cool thing and him being badass about it. And uh, it was like a regular energetic opening weekend. But then there were a couple people that had a lot of, uh, I would say, interaction, uh, screen interaction. <laughs> and uh it made for such a dynamic exciting time and people were just like like all of us were just jumping up yelling laughing just had the, one of the best times of my life yeah yeah i i know exactly what you're talking about because that there's like a kind of energy when you're like in a room with people and you're like all connected and you're all just clicking with the movie that makes me kind of want to cry that i haven't seen a movie in a theater in yeah. whatever a, a year and some change um, and it makes me mad that I didn't go see like bloodshot and whatever else, <laughs> whatever else bullshit was out in February of 2020. But, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about, but like that is, that, that is like the ideal way to see an action movie is to have a bunch of people who are just really pumped about the, the, like the lead actor yeah. or like just, they're really connected to like one element of it because that like heightens the, the anticipatory factor for them, then it heightens like your enjoyment of the thing because you're just like feeding off of your energies. Hundred percent, yeah. Uh, so, but I will say we talked a little bit about this last week. Uh, I was a little bit disappointed by Blade. Um, and uh, or sorry, by Blade Two because one of the things I really loved about the first Blade, which we talked about a lot last week, is I liked the. Um, depiction of vampires as like almost a, a upper class mob like have secret control of a lot of like governments or, or police agencies or stuff like that and essentially had a situation where they had like they, they weren't really <clears throat> under threat but were like expanding scope in a very like sophisticated way and Stephen Dorff who at the time I thought was just as amazing villain portrayal in the original blade we did laugh about uh that a little bit about how how i thought it was one of the best performances of all time when i was 15 <laughs> uh it doesn't quite meet that but it was just like he was so you were the cool. guy who he saw was... deuces wild in the theater that was you i did not see deuces <laughs> wild in the... i was amazed at how uh other steven dorf performances did not live up to uh to my expectation including stuff i like like judgment night um uh, i really like like it just felt like he was like generally like kind of chill he wasn't like this angry villain he didn't make mistakes he succeeded all the way through and i thought like that depiction 
of vampires or monsters or whatever else just felt so different than anything else I had seen. And so going into Blade 2, there was a lot of it I liked, but I remember really feeling let down that like they had succumbed to this idea of of just general monsters, right? Yeah. Um, and it's amazing. Uh, this is the first time I've watched Blade 2, I think maybe since that night in the theaters, which uh, I didn't tell Peter until recently, even though I've owned it on Blu-ray and I've been meaning to rewatch it. I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll undo the suspense now. Uh, Blade 2 is definitely better than Blade, a movie that I still like quite a bit of on watch. Nice. And I gave it fi- I gave it five stars. I Woo! fucking loved this movie. This is going to be, for the most part, a love fest all the way through i uh i yeah it 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 hit me i mean i love del toro i told you peter that i was surprised how much i still enjoyed blade for like letterbox reference i still gave it four and a half stars i had a great time with it but i was suspicious going into this that um i wasn't going to have those same uh those same feelings about i gotta see like a a steven dorf level (laughs) villain portrayal (laughs) to walk away happy so i'm excited to get into it before we do Peter, I think you're probably best positioned to talk a little bit about Del Toro and uh, and Magnola uh, kind of joining in this. But I want to start a little bit on the comics. So we talked about how, you know, we're going to have a whole episode in a couple weeks devoted to the Hellboy comics and that entire series about how, you know, the movies pulled from this pretty established mythos that obviously ca- kind of continued as the movies uh, have been have been made. And it was a shock to both Peter and myself. Zach, I don't know how familiar you are with Blade comics. I don't know if you knew this either. That essentially, like, the Blade in the comics that, like, is the Daywalker and uh, has vampire powers and all that stuff, all that came from the movie. Blade in the comics prior to that was just a detective who was immune to vampirism with no superpowers. Wow. Were you aware of that? I don't think I w- I've read some of the old comics and I just I think I just brought my history to the character to it. So I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah. he's a he's a daywalker. And no, even he, if they didn't mention it. Yeah. So that was very surprising to us. So so Blade's obviously this big hit, right? Um, the first movie, highest grossing Marvel movie of all time until 2002. Um, <laughs> it somehow beat Howard the Duck and the Punisher. And yeah. And the Punisher and the unreleased Fantastic Four movie. Um, so right after this movie comes out, they do a, uh, a new series. They start a new series. The, sorry. The, right after the first Blade movie comes out, they do a new series, uh, with three issues, which I read that, uh, essentially has, it's, it's an arc that starts where they give Blade, Blade movie powers, right? So in the comic, he gets bitten by Morbius, the living vampire, and then becomes the daywalker. That series, which uh, premieres about uh, six months after the first movie comes out, first movie comes out about March 98, first issue of that comes in October 98, that series ends on a to-be-continued on issue three and gets canceled. (laughs) (laughs) Hate that. Then they pick it up about a year later in 99 now in another series that lasts six issues. Uh, This series, I read the first four. It is terrible. It is like... It does pick up with him now being the Daywalker, but it has like it's it's I, Peter. I almost sent you a picture of of like one of the screenshots. I'm like, this is what we want in our Blade comics. It's like there's no vampires. It's like this weird silver fox society that's in space, and it's like this is your like 
this is your post movie swing at like a named comic series that gets canceled after six issues. They don't do another issue featuring. Oh, they they kind of pick up his story and end it in a two parter in Spider Man in two thousand, or and that and that um, whatever arc they were doing. And then there's not another comic book featuring Blade until this movie comes out, where they do a six part uh, uh, Marvel Max uh, series that is impossible to find unless you want to go find the original comic. So I haven't read him. And and then they don't do he doesn't show up in a comic book for four more years. So it is amazing to me that like Blade tremendous success. They try to you know make him the superhero that everyone knows from the movie, so that theoretically people buy the books. They give up on that twice after like nine issues total, and then they do a like a, a series that runs concurrently with this movie's release that's in the adult label for Marvel. And then that's it till 2006. Like, it, it's kind of amazing at how little, like, Blade has 30 appearances before the Blade movie, right? <laughs> Between Tomb of Dracula and a couple other of his own series that, like, introduces Deacon Frost. Like, it's not a ton, but it's not nothing. It is crazy to me that there's essentially four shots over about 20 issues all the way between Blade getting released in 98 and then a year post blade trinity like they did almost nothing to try to do what a lot of comic publishers were trying to do at this time which was to um hey we have a movie featuring this character now's our chance to you know sell more spider-man comic books or catwoman comic books or whatever else like it was it's really surprising and especially surprising as we talk about as we switch over to hellboy in the next couple weeks and how like those movies really helped really drive a lot of the sales of those books. Peter, you read a couple of the post uh, Blade comic books, didn't you? Yeah, and I, I just wasn't really I wasn't really grabbed by it, and it kind of comes no. back to my point I was making last week, which is that <laughs> I felt kind of guilty for years uh, in being a comic book reader who had never. And uh, somebody who loved the Blade character, particularly Wesley Snipes' version of it, but had never actually gone back to the comic books. Like, I, I felt some weird sense of guilt about it. And thank God it's all gone now because <laughs> none of the yeah. ones that are, are readily available are uh, either uh, all that good if Blade is the central character. And if Blade's a side character, you're sort of like, yeah, I mean, he's kind of a cool guy. He shows up sometimes to help Doctor Strange. That seems cool of him. Like it's not. He occasionally yells that he thinks "quote unquote" vampires stink. <laughs> yeah, he does in the in the in the um not really stink and not stu- suck. Yeah. yeah, no, in the seventies, yeah, he's like these guys stink. Like I, I screenshot it and sent it to Peter. I'm like, whoa, I can I see why they made this a hard R for the comics code at yeah. the time, right? Like he has yeah. to he has to speak in jive and he has to call them turkeys and stuff. It's pretty, it's pretty uh, white guy writing. Um, yeah, well, also he's, writing a, he's a British book. in those early comics. Yes, and so it's uh, it, it's it's very clear that uh, Marv Wolfman, which I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, right. Are you aware that the guy who wrote Blade's name was Marv Wolfman, right? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I just need to park there for a second again. I'll do it every week for the rest. Yeah, of we got Marv Wolfman corner where Peter just acknowledges to the guest <laughs> that the person who wrote Blade's <laughs> name is is Marv Wolfman. <laughs> um. 
Yeah, so Marv Wolfman, yes. Uh, they were British comics, uh, and uh, a lot of Oh, the, Peter, I just got it. Like the Wolfman of horror fame. Yeah. Oh, okay. I yeah, because yeah, Blade so hunts Wolfman. Yeah, Blade is famous. <laughs> he's he's the daywalker. Um, just yeah. The sun up in the air, he can hey. turn into a wolf whenever he wants. Yeah, wolf wolfmen don't come out during the day either. <laughs> they don't, they don't. <laughs> uh, Blade would be Mo- the daywalker. Fun fact. When it comes to that, like, all of us are daywalkers in the Wolfman arena. (laughs) (laughs) Including actual Wolfman. And I've never been attacked by a Wolfman, so for all I know, I'm also a Nightwalker. Yeah, a very small percentage of us. Yeah, a very small percentage of us are Marvs. (laughs) (laughs) Basically the guy from Home Alone, and that's it. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, it's weird because so, the other uh, one's the, hairy, and Wolfmen are hairy. We, let's oh let's, my God. let's follow this down. Yeah, <laughs> Ma, what do you mean? You got bit by a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> the wolf That's kind bandits. of my thing. We're the hairy bandits. <laughs> um, but yeah, those those comics uh, are not very interesting, though they're very charming in a '70s kind of way, right? Um, yeah. they have a they 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 uh, you know, Dracula literally at one point kills a boat captain and and kidnaps or uh, you know commandeers a uh, rich person's yacht so he can make all the rich people on the boat uh vampires like that's oh, yeah. like a plot line extremely like focused on like 10 year olds right like yeah, yeah. who just want to see monsters and, and and such but like it's not really like it's not like pointing at anything it's not pointing at societal issues like it's just like here here's dracula and then here's like a cool guy in a green jacket that's gonna try and kill dracula like Pretty much everything was pulled into Stephen Norrington's universe. And uh, Del Toro in an interview said as much as well. He was like, I didn't really have any affection for the Blade character. He's like, I liked I liked what Marv Wolfman did with Dracula. Like, I thought that was cool. But um, I don't particularly have any affinity for the character. And then I actually, we, uh, him and someone else pitched on the first Blade movie. Um, and he's like, we didn't get it. And thank God, because what Stephen Norrington did was 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 excellent. And I got to pick up and kind of move into his realm. And so Del Toro for Blade 2, um, in one sense, it's for higher work, but viewed in like the scope of him being in his early career, it's very interesting because like yeah. he worked with the Weinsteins. He hated them. He went and made Devil's Backbone. And he was like, okay, I'm getting more confidence. I'm getting my confidence back. I'm getting my, my technical prowess back. I, I'm getting my sense of visual stylus back. And he was like, okay, I'm going to come back and try and pitch on Hollywood movies again. And he manages to land this deal for Blade 2 after Stephen Norrington and a few other directors turned it down. I think David Goyer wanted to direct it at one point. Yep. Thank God. <laughs> so <laughs> Just wait uh, a couple years for that one. Yeah, yeah, we have to... <laughs> wait in two weeks? Or yeah, we'll wait a couple we weeks for it. that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in this time. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so uh, David Goyer had written a stri- script treatment. The producers were, were all already there. Norrington had dropped out at that point. So, like, he already kind of had a box of toys to play with, but he was playing in someone else's box of toys, right? And it's incredible how Del Toro was, talks about this experience because he's like, I was able to, like, uh, learn all these new skills as a big... Like, I, I was able to l- learn how to work within the Hollywood system, work with money um work with uh you know technical stylus in a way i never had learn how to actually shoot like action action um because even watching mimic now there's like not that many action sequences 
Um, a lot of it is just waiting for the action sequences, you know, anticipatory. You mentioned this in Mimic, but part of this does feel like he's like, I'm going to do the sewer scenes with a little more freedom this time. Yeah. Yes, yes. And Not stuck in a broken down subway car for half the burning time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's that's like where we're going is that like this he manages to make this movie that he himself says, this is not a Guillermo del Toro movie. This is a Blade movie. And I wanted to respect Blade as somebody who like drinks his own Kool-Aid. And I love del Toro because he can back it up. But like somebody who drinks his own Kool-Aid for him to say that is fairly powerful. Because it's a movie he's talked about and he's like, he's proud of it. And he's happy that he, he moved on from the series. Um, but he's like, it's an experience he talks about being very proud of. And and some of that is he got to, you know, fulfill some sort of uh, ambitions of his career. But also he's setting up the sort of playground he's going to play in for a very long time with his yeah. career. Um, and, and Yeah, and you can I tell even about, though he had no particular affinity necessarily with Blade as a comic book character, he does have affinity for comic book characters and comic books in general and you just you get a lot more sense like well the opening scene is a really good example of like blade being shot less like an action star and more of a uh in a superhero mold like the flashing red on his cape and some of the the shots it's like it really is very far removed from the icy techno vibe of the of the of the late 90s and really more into that like pulpy comic book um um realm while still being you know very very well done but he definitely uh again uh, has a lot of a lot of i think respect for the medium and understands like this is what a comic book looks like where blade it, like the idea that it was a comic book movie was an afterthought like it was something that like you found out a year after seeing it like did you know there's a blade comic book character because they played down all of it, its relation for a variety of the reasons uh peter do you do you know how uh mignola got involved um no i actually don't know too much other than he uh he pitched on the movie and then he got involved in as a conceptual artist through a friend and uh, a lot of these concept arts as uh, concept arts and storyboards are not really like widely available um a lot of them i found a few del toro has if you look in the chat box of the skype i put um a few that i want to talk about um because it's so cool are you saying to our entire audience to do that (laughs) i'll put it in the show notes i'll put in the show notes but sounds like someone basically took pictures of these while they were display at um uh, bleak house at del toro's house um so it sounds like someone uh just took pictures of them while they were on display there and it's like it is it is mignola it's classic mignola it has his skulls his fingers it has it's it's gorgeous work. I don't know if you guys have opened it yet. But. Yeah, so it's yep, great. Yep. I love this. I've yeah. never seen it. It's amazing. It's basically, I mean, it's it's it feels like it's like halfway, if not two thirds of the way to just being like him drawing a Blade fucking comic book. A yeah. lot of storyboards are just kind of line drawings, right? This yeah. is... Well, and one, and one of my favorite shots of the movie is clearly designed by him too with like the shot of Nomak like just on top of the pile of security guards. Yeah. It's kind of like um, it, it's kind of like looks like a classical art. art. Like it kind of yeah. reminds me of like a Greek portrait of like all the all these dead. Like it looks like a bunch of dead poisoned people at like a Parthenon or something. Like they're all kind of splayed out flatly across these yeah. steps, and then he's standing astride, holding onto one of them, and like frozen in pose. Like that stuff is is, is like you can tell what Mignola was going for, and then you can easily tell 
what del toro latched onto and he's like i want to make this lurid and um beautiful i want to make the shot beautiful as opposed to just scary and that's that's where their two interests come together for me is that uh they both are people that love monsters of course it's it's kind of an obvious thing to say but one thing that they love is is to make monsters both beautiful and terrifying in the same frame I think we've laid enough groundwork. Do you guys want to get into Blade Numero Dos? Of course. You mean Blade 2 Blood Hunt? <laughs> was that like a, a almost name of it? It was sent to theaters with that on the can. Um, and then they just, it, was never, it wasn't in like the opening title or whatever. The, the, it was just d- disappeared from history because the at the last minute, I think they changed the title to just Blade 2. Yeah, that's that's better. That's fine. <laughs> it's like how Evil Dead Two is Dead by Dawn or something. It's like it's it's a similar vibe. Yeah. Sure, Peter, since you asked so nicely. Um, Blade 2. Oh, good for you. (laughs) Christian Bale should be in this movie. He wasn't that big, and he's got to be better uh, than fucking Norman Reedus. (laughs) I was just about to make a joke. (laughs) Uh, If you you like Norman Reedus, the movie has Norman Reedus in it. If you don't like Norman Reedus, he gets blown up. He gets blown up. Yeah, so it's been a while since I see it. Peter, we had a conversation a couple weeks ago because Norman Reedus is in Mimic about how I don't like Norman Reedus. And and part is that I don't like the the two properties that he's associated with, I really don't like. I don't like Boondock Saints, and I don't right. like The Walking Dead. And so, like, I was in my in my quest to kind of see, like, what am I missing? There must be some movie I'm forgetting about that other people have a lot of affinity for. There's not. Like, he's not been in anything else, really, that's noteworthy. Uh, and, and Peter's like, well, except Blade 2, and I have a lot of affection for him in Blade 2. And having watched this movie, Peter... If you have affection for him getting blown up immediately and sucking, agreed. But <laughs> if I had to hear him call someone, hey, B, one more time, <laughs> uh, I was going to loot. Like, he, he's, this underlines how I think he's a piece of garbage as an actor. All right. So let, let's pass to Zach before we get into the, the Reedus yeah. talk. What do you think? What do you think of Norman Reedus, Zach? Uh, What's your Reedus? He's, my, my Reedus on Reedus is that... <laughs> He's now a, we have to do a podcast. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> he's he's I don't know. He's he's definitely making choices here, and I appreciate that. I haven't really yeah I haven't particularly liked him in anything else. I think he's supposed to be annoying here, 
So I think I think I I like that about the performance. That's my <laughs> that's my takeaway is that uh, he's effectively. I I want to see him blown up, especially because <laughs> I and part mostly because of this movie, but also because of his music. I am a huge Chris Christopherson fan. So when they're button heads right at the beginning, where I'm like, oh, I know whose side I'm on. Oh, yeah. so you're oh, really excited. There's no way. Any, there's no one on earth who would pick Norman Reedus over over fucking Christopherson. No, the fact that you're saying no one on earth, like, do you know those people with those stupid like Latin tattoos of the Boondock Saints on their arms? <laughs> Trust me, there there are tons of people who would pick Norman Reedus over Chris Christopherson. Are, are, you, are you telling me there's still Boondock Saints people out there? I feel like there are a hundred percent movie. Like that's kind of no, there. There's Boondock Saints people. They're the worst. They're the worst people. I thought they were just filtered into like uh, Zack Snyder fans or something. I mean, you can you can have two favorite movies, <laughs> <laughs> Boondock Saints and um, I don't know, Sucker Punch. Sucker, Sucker Punch, punch. Yeah. Sucker punch is movies. the right answer, by the way. <laughs> thank you, Zach. No problem. Like, yeah, well, I kind of like Man of Steel. Is it that one? <laughs> fine. Oh no, it's definitely Sucker Punch. Yeah, yeah. that's that's the Boondock Saint fan movie. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so here's my take on Norman Reedus. Um, it's complicated because. Uh, I have a bit of Stockholm syndrome with him uh, because he was for a period of time I was like him and Steven Yoon were like the only good parts of Walking Dead that a show that I watched way beyond its expiration date. What was your uh, there's a, there's that great Twitter thread that no more small talk just say what season you quit watching Walking Dead. <laughs> um, I think it was seven. Uh, I think I made it to seven. Ooh, wow, Peter. I I quit halfway through season two. Mm. Season four five like second half of four going into five is actually like has some really good shit but like none of that is worth getting to like there's there's especially as it's in the zombie milieu like go play last of us go play go watch any zombie movie go go watch a romero movie it's probably been a while since you've seen them because most of them are not available on dvd (laughs) go pirate Uh, what was your movie what was your did you zach did you watch walking dead i did so i also quit i think at the end of season two yeah. And then I I sort of picked it back up, picked it back up a couple years later, and made it to somewhere in that first governor season, and I was like, this sucks, and I stopped. Yeah, once they get through like the first governor arc, it gets like pretty good for a while. Gotcha. So, like, back on the road, and then it gets bad again. So it's really just not worth doing. Anyways, is it, is it is it still really on the, the air? I feel uh, like it's not yeah. over yet. Yeah, they're they're wrapping up. I think the last season. I mean, uh, Norman Reedus is uh, this just in on IMDb. His uh, top uh, most recent credit is "Untitled Carol and Daryl Spinoff." Yeah, they're they're making they're making more Walking Dead shit, and I don't I truly don't understand it because like the bad the bad parts of Walking Dead they're keeping, which is like um, Norman Reedus. No, like they're keeping like a lot of the original creative staff who have just spent years treading water on this shitty show. Yeah. Um, Normaritas is doing a AM for AMC now that he just has so much like clout there. Uh, he did a fucking motorcycle show with them for a while. Um, oh yeah, where he just talked about motorcycles, right? Yeah. Can you imagine the show? Norman Reedus. It was like, it was like Top Gear for motorcycles that Norman Reedus is aware of. And do you think he goes like, yeah, man, that's a cool bike. And then he goes goes to meet someone else and then they talk about their bike for 20 minutes yeah. and he goes, yeah, B! Man, that's a cool bike. B, you yeah. seen this bike, B? <laughs> it's, it's like that Stanley Tucci cooking show for people without culture. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right, Peter, what happens? And oh, and I like Norman Reedus in uh, the John Carpenter episode, or the second, the first John Carpenter episode of Masters of Horror. Cigarette yeah, I mean, burns. that's a good episode, but like, I, I wasn't. I need us to read us. It's a, it's a good episode, despite Norman Reedus being in it. I I don't. Yeah, I, I like obviously he just like, walks I'm around the whole time. He's like, you seen this film? You seen this film canister somewhere? <laughs> and then other people do good things in it. I'm I'm trying. I was trying to park off time so we could stop talking about Norman Reedus. But like, uh, okay, so Hollywood like, feed us more Reedus. That's what I <laughs> feed say. us the Reedus. <laughs> Um, I I think that there's one good argument for Norman Reedus's character Scud in this movie. Well, two. One, uh, I don't think I've ever seen this movie like in like HD on like a big TV before. But Scud yeah. is wearing a BPRD shirt, which is pretty cool. That yeah, must have been Magnolia. Cool. Um, and then two. Um, but then he's like, hey, scene- but to be to seem rad, you know, like the kids. Can you put eight sweatshirts over it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This also does confirm uh, a thing about Blade that no one has ever asked, which is, does Blade smoke weed? Um, And this movie confirms that yes, just later. (laughs) (laughs) Because Scud asks him, he's like, do you want a toke, B? And he's like, later. (laughs) (laughs) Should have called him Blaze. Yeah, Blazed. Um, my favorite, my favorite Scud line is he goes when he introduces himself to Whistler. He goes, "Call me Scud." Everyone else does. And <laughs> who's everyone else? You clearly live with this this loner vampire hunter who rescued you years ago. <laughs> I guess I guess the vampires he's working for, but it it definitely comes across. I agree. It's like a not uh, affectionate thing that he's trying to bring him in. Is like, hey, all my friends call me <laughs> Scud. He's just like, yeah. Everyone keeps calling me fuckface. So <laughs> if, if you call me Daryl, it's going to be confusing for the movie. <laughs> what does Chris Christopherson call him? Spud or something? Yeah. He calls him Scuzz at one point. Scuzz? <laughs> Which is God, good. I love Chris Christopherson. Um, yeah, we'll have a whole we'll have a whole Chris Christopherson love, love corner Ooh. for a little bit after this. Because he's like way more in this movie. He's not like the grandpa figure that comes in for one awesome action sequence. Uh, he's like in kind of yeah. a lot of the movie. So, yeah, and he, he's got the right beat on everything throughout. Yeah. So uh, the movie begins. Uh, this movie takes place in uh, Eastern Europe. Um, notably, notably the Czech Republic. It's both like shot in Eastern Europe, and it takes place there. Um, so we're seeing uh, somebody go into a blood bank. They're being interviewed, being asked a lot of questions. We're noticing that the people that are interviewing and asking questions are surprised they're vampires. Um, but this guy is really like putting himself through, you know, putting himself through his pain uh, to to get through this process. Uh, and they get to the room. He gets strapped down, you know, ostensibly for taking his blood. A guy that looks. A lot like Udo Kier, but is not Udo Kier. Uh, tries to take his blood, and uh, this guy uh, starts laughing. Because uh, these vampires, they fell into his trap. He breaks out of his restraints, he murders them, and, and makes a specific show in front of camera that he's hunting vampires. And so we found out this like a vampire-run blood bank, and this is a, some sort of new breed of vampire that you know can take silver bullets, it doesn't matter, hyper-strong, hyper-fast. And uh, that's all we know for now. Then we cut to uh, Blade is hunting some Eastern European vampires. Uh, He's trying to get information on where Whistler is. Uh, He kills a bunch of them in this sort of dazzling uh, wire foo kind of sequence. 
and he rescues Whistler, uh, Chris Christopherson. So what ended up happening, they kind of, we could talk about this here. Are they kind of retrofitting the ending from the last well, movie? I actually think supposed to die in the last movie. No. So what's actually, we, we kind of had this debate and I did a little more digging. Weirdly, this movie essentially picks up from the cut ending of, or the original scripted ending of the original Blade. So the, we talked, we mentioned this a little bit as like an Easter egg, but the original script of Blade, it ends with him in Russia, right? And he's hunting, and, and um, in that movie, he uh, there's like um, some Russian person who's like hitting on some girl or threatening her, and Blade shows up out of the shadows. In the original script, that was supposed to be Whistler. He was hunting Whistler. Um, and that was like the last shot that you saw was him finding Whistler in in Russia. And this movie kind of like alludes to that, that like for the last couple of years he's been going around and he mentions Moscow specifically as a place that he was looking for Whistler. So it almost feels to me as like that the original movie and the script or whatever else like kind of alluded to him surviving and becoming a vampire. And then the end of it was going to be him finding him with like a to be conti- not a to be continued, but a cliffhanger um, of a, of an ending scene, and and this one feels like it picks up on the scripted version, but kind of ignores the movie version that we saw. <laughs> yeah, I, I I like it because we get more Chris Christopherson, right? Like it's clumsy. Um, it is a thing sequels do, but however, yeah. uh, as will be a theme for the next uh, you know hour or so of this podcast. Um, I, uh, a lot of the, the sort of like faults in this movie can be smoothed over, um, just on sheer energy and charisma. And this is one of those things where it's like, well, yeah, it's a little clumsy, but if the payout here is more Chris Christopherson in this whole movie to act as sort of like, um, reminding Blade of what the mission is and, and sort of, um, T- taking some uh, abuse, uh, having some awesome one-liners, um, making us uh, have somebody who's just going to absolutely abuse Scud the whole movie. Like, great. Like, that, if, the, if the cost is, like, some clunky plotting to get Chris Christopherson back, totally willing to pay that price. Yeah, yeah I just... I, I, I kind of, like, I, it, I don't think it takes that much, like, gymnastics. Like, I just think it's a... Oh, yeah, he didn't die. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I just don't like when I have, like, a, a pretty sound emotion. This is one thing I don't generally like about comic book movies is when I have, like, a pretty serious emotional reaction to something, and then they take it away from me later, because they're like, he didn't actually die! Like, because this character's too popular to die. <laughs> or this character uh, actually did want to come back and do one more movie. Like, that's just, you know, that's just uh, something that generally... So, sorry, just... We may cut this out because we already explained to our audience, but Zach, did you realize that Whistler is only a movie creation and has never appeared in the comic books? And actually, he's not a movie creation. He's a creation for a a Spider-Man animated television show from 1994. Character like a Whistler shows up and they used him for the 98 movie. That's I knew he was in the cartoon and I knew I'd never seen him in the comics. I don't think I really connected the the, that. (laughs) particular piece of it that's funny though yeah and it is funny because blade had a sort of mentor like figure in classic characters from dracula um i think they were descendants of van helsing and the harpers in in the dracula comics yeah um and but instead they threw all that shit out because they were i think they just determined that like the dracula plotting stuff was 
hokey. Maybe Bram Stoker's Dracula. Coppola's until Bram next, Dracula until next movie. Yes, and then they get to the third one, and that's that's David Goyer bringing kind of all of his leftover ideas that he was had rejected from the last two movies into one. Uh, he rescues Whistler. Whistler and him go back to Blade's hide, Eastern European hideout. And oh, sorry, uh, actually wanted to add in this uh, rescue sequence. Uh, talking about things that don't work, but they kind of do because of the energy. Uh, this is the first of a couple sequences where Blade becomes an entire computer-generated creation. And it, <laughs> yeah. happen- it happens just, like, right when your brain is like, oh, this is dog shit, it morphs or cuts into a live-action Wesley Snipes. Yeah. So you kind of like, oh, okay, I'm not mad anymore, so I guess this is fine. And it's it, this is the, that's the first time it happens, though, is when he, he leaps out the window after finding out, uh, trying to find out where Whistler is being held. Yeah, it's not terrible. Yeah. Like, I, I agree. Like, it, it, it has that, like, Spider-Man uh sam raimi spider-man energy where they're like if we do it far enough away no one can tell the difference and much like Uh, and it's funny you're talked about blade and the matrix like this is i always thought it was interesting that this was like the first like cgi like fight and this is later but yeah like human characters being computer generated like doing action when matrix reloaded did it you know maybe like a year later it got so yeah. much cred for that. Yeah. And, th- and what this this movie does is um, if a particular stunt is super impossible or what Del Toro wanted to do with the camera is super Im- just impractical, right. um, they just did it in CGI. Despite the fact that they had a uh, sni- they had Wesley Snipes on hand, who it sounds like he was shooting other movies at the time, too. So they ended up using like he shot five movies this year. Yeah. <laughs> And Wesley oh, Snipes all, knew all when iron was hot and also yeah. uh, didn't realize to pay his taxes. Um, <laughs> could have put one of those movies aside to pay his taxes, but didn't didn't do it. Wesley Snipes, uh, they had Donnie Yen and they had three other action specialists working. And then they uh, also had a face double for Wesley Snipes for certain scenes that they could hide it because Wesley Snipes was shooting other stuff. And I'm curious if some of the CGI stuff is not just a matter of practicality and them trying to figure out, you know, what are the limits of this new technology? And some of it is literally like, well, we can piece together this fight scene and do this one sequence with wires, but Wesley Snipes isn't here, so let's fucking just do it in CGI. We'll do it in post. Well, I'm curious if it's like shot by shot or if like Del Toro and, and his SFX team were like, no, 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 this shot will look a lot cooler if he bounces yeah, off the Yeah, I, I get the sense that, shot. that this probably looked pretty cool in 2002. I'm having trouble remembering like if I was wowed by it or I didn't notice it or I didn't think it was cool, but I also think it speaks to like Del Toro trying to be more superhero. Like, you know, the, again, Blade in 98, he's just Wesley Snipes' action star. Like, he's doing stuff that Wesley Snipes can do. And there's a more, I think, concentrated effort to give him a sense of the more of the superpower aspects of his character. You're right. Blade does a lot more bouncing off the wall. He does a lot more uh, big, bold, in-shot special effects that were clearly like Wesley Snipes runs towards a pillar they edit him out of the shot, and then a CGI version of him bounces off the pillar to do a slam on a Nomak. Like, that's... <laughs> you can tell that they're doing that shit. But what's also awesome is, that, like, if that stuff really bothers you, there's a ton of practical effects to back it up. Like, the this movie tries a couple times to top 
the um the two big action sequences from the first movie the club the blood club scene yeah. that opens it and then the um taking down deacon's tower and i think it does i think that the i think that like when it does do go full practical effects um it really does it really does top the first movie yeah, yeah i think that's right and i generally don't think they hold any computer generated shot for as long as they do Stephen Dorff as the blood god, you know, like it's it's <laughs> they, they they melt. Del Toro is smart enough to melt it in enough that if it looks like dog shit for two and a half three seconds, it's not it's not the end of the world. It looks fine, yeah, at, in totality. Which I, I I I remember even then being like, oh, that looks dumb. Oh, it's it's already okay. Like it's and it's it's like yeah. you can't even deal with it. He knows that he knows that if if the overall impact of the moment is powerful enough that it doesn't matter like he knows also how to fuck with special how to fuck with um sound effects and particularly actors voices to intone so that it doesn't feel flat so like if he's doing a big wrestling move he has um wesley snipes make a big awesome wesley snipes like yeah like kind of sound because that like (laughs) makes the effect land whereas if it's a totally silent character doing it or the, the the punching effect sounds too cartoony and it doesn't sound badass. It does not work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. What what happens next? So he's got Whistler back. Uh, and also in the, the, the club is Scud, who's sort of his stand-in for Whistler. It was someone that Blade rescued from being eaten by vampires. And Blade uh, took him on to his team and he does the car stuff. He does some of his sort of like micro or alfred or you know he's sort of his like he'll work with him on tech on some stuff or you know intelligence on some stuff um which is kind of you know it's um (laughs) it's it's a it makes sense like blade needs a backup person like he needs somebody to help him actually pull off all this shit because otherwise he just can't so um then he's just like all right well the whole crew is together and before they can kind of settle in their disputes uh they're attacked by uh vampire ninjas who are from this blood pack uh nobody dies but they are essentially delivering a treaty with the vampire nation so um all of them uh go to the headquarters of the vampire nation and they meet uh demoskinos um who's a and these vampire ninjas, I just wanted to to pop in because this is where I think the movie really changed for me and became something special. Because so up until that, it was general like opening weekend electricity. You know, people were like, "Oh yeah, ooh ha!" And then these ninjas come and they're flipping along the rafters, and Del Toro almost cuts out the sound design completely. And somebody in the theater stood up and goes, "Oh shit!" <laughs> And I don't think <laughs> I don't think I would have noticed that, oh, these guys are such ninjas that they don't bring up sound if that person yeah. didn't yell that and like really call attention to it. And like a bunch of people in the theater gasped and laughed. And then at that point it was sort of like an all bets are off situation and everybody was really getting in on the movie together. And it's oh, it's yeah. part of that experience. But it was that oh shit. I was like, oh wait, yeah, this is this is effective filmmaking. When I wasn't, you know, yeah. sixteen, I'm not really expecting to to have that sort of uh, experience watching Blade Two. Yeah, and I I agree because even among this like rewatch, it's been a long time since I've seen it, and like the opening stuff is good, and it, it's it's about the part where yeah the ninjas show up 
And then they're back meeting the like old Nosferatu guy. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> like, am I going to love this? And then, you know, by the time you're in the sewer and the last 50 minutes happening, happen, it's, it's just like, it's just like, yeah, this is really, really fucking good. I, like Peter, you know, I was, I was like, okay, I'm gonna like this. I'm not gonna be as like weirdly put off by the by the lack of Stephen Dorff or like <laughs> character that made me think it was good but lesser. Um, and then you know the opening minutes where they're really trying to kind of do the the superhero motif. It does feel a little bit of a letdown from the club scene that opens the original Blade, right? It's him in an alley, nondescript alley. There's five guys. It's not bad. It just isn't like – it isn't the kind of kick in the pants that that opening scene of Blade is to go, holy shit, what the fuck is going on You know, in this movie and really kind of exciting you? Um, and it kind of saves it for about 20 minutes in when it, like, you know they get Whistler back. They kind of – close that loop and then all of a sudden things get uh stakes get higher very quickly than just him trying to hunt vampires yeah yeah and i think what they're doing there in the opening is this is more of a horror movie than the last movie yeah the last movie was pretty much never scary and there are moments in this that i think are actually kind of creepy um and at least moments that like i've seen this movie i think dozens of times and i still go like like I still have like a ugh kind of moment because uh, Del Toro understands the visceral, but he also knows that he should shoot these opening sequences, uh, particularly um, the two the two uh, sequences where he's hunting for Whistler, with a lot of the perspective of the vampires being hunted, because that sense of speed and that sense of uh, just ferocity that Blade brings in there. Um, makes it into a weird horror movie where we're like, I hope this vampire gets away for like part of your brain, like uh, kind of uh, empathizes with the vampire for a second. Like, I hope he gets away. And then Blade is just like takes over the movie from there. Like for for a moment, you're in the the vampire's perspective because it's easier for the movie to explain Blade's power when you're being pursued as opposed to Blade doing the pursuing, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think and that first one does such a good job of setting up, oh, this is a vampire underworld that exists within a reality that we all know, you know? And this one's much more, this is an elevated gothic horror action set in the, you know, the streets of Prague with bright red and bright green lights and, you know, canted angles a little bit and stuff like that. And it's a lot more stylized in that way, I feel like. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and and so I, I really like that as like a, a reaction to the first movie where they're like, we need to we need to bring more of the um, the horror viscera back in. So they they uh, they just they they learn uh, the vampire nation. They meet Demosquinos, and they learn that there's a new threat. They don't know where it came from, uh, but it's a uh, Jared Nomak who's going to be the the primary villain of the movie, um, aside Demosquinos. Jared Nomak is a Reaper, which is a new hybrid vampire, and they can turn people and they can turn vampires into um, these this Reaper strain. Um, and what are Reapers? Reapers uh, are immune to silver, garlic, um, EDTA from the last movie. <laughs> um, they run through the list, so it's, it doesn't do the James Bond thing where you're like, James, if you had your watch from the last movie, you could get right through this. Um <laughs> It, uh, it it doesn't reset the clock. It actually escalates the EDTA thing, and you get a moment where you get to see the EDTA not work. Um, so 
Um, they also have a uh, sort of an extra hard sort of like bone shield around their heart. And as I'm saying that, I'm realizing I'm like, isn't that kind of what a rib cage is? But it's like twice as hard as a rib cage. Um, it's not your mama's rib cage. <laughs> yeah, this ain't your daddy's rib cage. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck getting a pacemaker in this fucker. <laughs> Um, the one of the parts that really did make me jump is, uh, even though I knew it was coming is when they like pour blood into this anatomy that's been turned into like a blood disposal factory or a blood processing factory, as opposed to like looking like uh, a human who just happens to drink blood. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a hyper efficient, uh, drinking and eating machine who will react um the body reacts based on impulses which is like a reptile and an insect thing um and it also has a very cool thing where it's uh jaw bifurcates um into two pieces and then it has a tongue with razor barbs on it it's a very scary image i think the idea of this like what del toro talked about in, in interviews is he talked about negative space and how it's very disturbing for us he was actually inspired partially by a shotgun victim photo that he saw um and that like this just the jaw was gone and it was just a very striking image because we look to mouths so much when we're speaking and understanding how who people are and the idea that 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 mouth just becomes a massive reptilian gaping jaw is 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 really disturbing as an image um so they they are these are vampires of vampires um yes and, and that that sequence of course it's fucking del toro like this is someone who grew up drawing autopsy photos of werewolves and shit right like Del Toro would, of course, include an autopsy scene here. It's it's a classic horror moment. It is the movie is filled with gross practical effects, and this is the one moment where he's just like, "Well, I'm gonna shine." And he put a lot of thought into where the organs would be, and they'd be here. And when the system does pulse, it does this. And here's where the the thing is that actually gets you gets you infected with the you know the reaper strain like he put a lot of thought into all that to make these things scary so the blood pack goes on the hunt they go to a club of uh, all vampire club and this is this is the follow-up to the previous movie because the club is much bigger and this is like an officialized club because in the last movie deacon frost was getting shit about the club um uh udo kier was like you mustn't run your club anymore deacon frost and he's like fuck you you fuck I'll run my fucking club every, any way I want. Um, so Udo Kier, uh, I guess, was kind of those kind of people were pushed out of the party and more of the Deacon Frost were allowed in. Um, well, and then, and then the, the, the Irish guy, Priest, has that line where he's like, he's he's racist against other vampires. Where he's like, half these people probably aren't purebreds. We should just kill them all, which yeah it's just fun for kind of a non-character just to have this aside that you get a vibe for what these what these people are like blood pack is very interesting oh sorry i was just gonna say that you could really unpack that like if you think about like because steven dorf's character in the first blade movie his whole thing is that he's a half-breed right like, yeah in that in that he was made a vampire and like part of him and his like hip group of non-conformist vampires trying to usher in a new era like they had their clubs and they had their blood god prophecies and you know their hula hoops and stuff like <laughs> that and then um i like the idea the implied idea that vampires as a whole as like a pure blood kind of took from the 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 turned culture right and like was like oh clubs are good like there's a lot of benefit from this so they have the clubs now run by pure bloods 
and then they go around the club, you know, basically telling, um, uh, d- 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 still saying how much they hate like half breeds or, yeah. or or vampires that return. Uh, it's almost <laughs> reminiscent of what uh, white people do everywhere they go, where they just take the culture and then are shitty to everyone else, uh, trying to uh, and act like they created it in the first place. Speaking of racism in general, uh, there, there's a great so when when Blade first meets the Blood Pack, there's all this yeah. tension. They're like they've been they've been planning on killing you, and you're a vampire hunter, and they're vampires, and you're sworn enemies, and. Ron Perlman as Reinhardt comes up to him and you think there's going to be this big showdown and he goes we've all been wondering can you blush which I think is very interesting to sort of subvert what you're doing for them this all white group of blood pack to make a racist joke to him oh yeah yeah because it's it is like a it is a thing these are a bunch of eastern Europeans that are very focused on they're very focused on um, racial purity in one sense, right? Yeah. Um, but what's yeah. also interesting is like Assad and the Danny Yen character. I forget what the, his name is. Um, the samurai guy. Um, Snowman. Snowman. He doesn't talk, so I couldn't yeah. remember his name. <laughs> um, but uh, that those two characters are people of color. Assad yeah. is, is, yeah. is in some way um you know not a eastern slavic kind of guy and then uh denny yen is uh obviously an asian character um but they they decided to come at blade not with a hey daywalker why don't you go kill vampires like that wouldn't land but coming up to blade and making race jokes and then the movie immediately identifying this guy as like a nazi skinhead kind of archetype he has a german name reinhardt and a bunch of the other guys also are identified as 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 sort of um skinhead types um the the irish guy is is a priest is clearly supposed to be sort of like a a bigot of some sense because he's talking about pure bloods and stuff which you know blade is an equal opportunity slayer he doesn't care if you're born a vampire (laughs) if you were turned a vampire five minutes ago he'll cut your head off anyway um really it all looks the same in the light of day <laughs> in this case a pile of ashes a pile of um ashes. and that uh so so del toro actually planned to make that way more explicit by having them wear nazi uniforms and do nazi salutes and then i he, he ended up dropping it i'm unclear if it like they asked him to drop it or he decided that he liked the implication more than uh being explicit but obviously uh a scant two years later um he, he will be a lot more explicit in his nazi imagery uh but it, yeah that's that's hilarious that it's because you see especially the the uh, concept art that Pete sent over where you see the, yeah. the ties to help like the, the picture of Chupa that he looks like Rasputin uh, from the Hellboy yeah. comics. <laughs> uh, but also it was just also even back to my theatrical experience where I said that everybody else in the theater was, was black, very much rooting for Wesley Snipes as, as someone that they, they look up to that when right away when he's, straps the bomb onto Ron Perlman's head and says, well, now you got an explosive device stuck to the back of your head. Like there were so many cheers and laughter at that point that it was like, you're just, you're so in the moment with blade and it was, uh, but it was a lot of fun. And I think that the coding of, of Ron Perlman as that, yeah, Ron Perlman, especially, but even the whole blood pack as a sort of neo-Nazi like person uh, is, is pretty strong there. 
Yeah. And we were we also discussed last in the last episode how if you made this movie today, of course the racial stuff would yeah. need to be more um more outlined. In in the first blade, there's some references to Uncle Tom because uh Blade is a daywalker who hunts vampires. Like um Deacon Frost is trying to play at race in this movie. There's the Canyon Blush joke. Um and there's also references to pure bloods. Like there's um there's always sort of a hinting and a poking at the race stuff. Um but it's 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 not actually acknowledged in any serious way, yeah. and I think the next movie probably drops all that stuff entirely. Um, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I imagine it drops it all entirely. But it's a it's an interesting thing because, um, I think people, I think if you're a white person who's into comic book movies, you think about Blade as like one of those comic book movies that happened to make money, and then they decided to make more comic book movies, as opposed to Blade was like a black superhero. And he proved that the format could work. And he kind of snuck superhero movies past American audiences. Because the first movie is not really a superhero movie until like the last 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, and then this movie also is like, no, it's a scary vampire movie. And then Blade does like flips off of walls. And and like he has a big sword and all the iconography. And he charges up a punches. There's actually shots that are basically comic book panels where he's he's pulling an arm back and like Wesley Snipes is a very fast puncher. We've seen him punch people. He's pulling it back for dramatic effect so that the next shot where you hear a loud thump, like it makes sense to you that he like charged his arm up the way you, you know, fucking Thor might in a comic book. Um, that, uh, that, yeah. that, that, that clicks with you. You know, one thing, uh, if if you don't mind a quick pause here, just in case you don't get back to it, it is, we, you know, we talked a lot about Goyer and Del Toro. Uh, it's worth noting how much Snipes, Snipes still calls this his his favorite character that he's ever portrayed, even though, he, you know, he, I guess for the, both this and the next movie, he showed up occasionally, but he really <laughs> liked it conceptually. Um, he also but, said this uh, is his favorite Blade movie of the three. He did. Well, I think part of that, though, um, is that Del Toro speaks a lot in even, like, retrospective of this movie is, like, Bla- like Wesley Snipes understood who this character was, and he would suggest a lot of changes because he felt loyalty to the character, and he said every time he suggested a change, it was always better, and we always went with it. And I think that's part- probably why the movie's so good, the performance is so good, but also why, like, you know, Snipes looks back and calls this his favorite. And, you know, we're going to talk about in a few weeks where... <laughs> he had a different relationship with the director with but i i think it really came down to like del toro had a vision for the movie but recognized that like snipes as blade really was like the owner of that character and allowed him a lot of creative freedom to explore what he thought you know he took it seriously he wanted to portray this character he had a vision of it and like del toro let him do that and you know the thing with trinity becomes that goyer's like no i created blade and snipes uh and he he doesn't get that same level of 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 uh, ability to go outside of what goyer's doing and they stop speaking to each other and do communicate in very very funny post-it notes (laughs) yeah um we're gonna also canonically find out that blade smokes weed because in the next movie he is stoned in almost every <laughs> shot um, <laughs> so um yeah but but in this movie uh wesley snipes is still very much like an active presence and what he's starting to realize um what the character blade is starting to realize in this movie that wesley snipes very much plays um in a low-key kind of way which is 
Um, he's starting to grow an attachment to Nisa, who is uh, the princess of the vampire king, Damaskinos. Um, and uh, he's trying to go attached to her because she's like willing to work on the project. She's not throwing racial slurs at him. She's like, <laughs> she's very much interested in stopping these reapers. She's like, we need to save mankind and vampire kind. Um, and they're like bonding, they're sharing techniques and, um, it's sort of a half formed romance, um, throughout the movie. It's more fully formed in the original script. There's actually like shots of her hanging out in like Blade's robe or her own robe, like half naked with him. Um, and then was, and then like Whistler comes in, he's like, you're sleeping with the enemy. Like all that shit ended up being cut from the movie, but um, it's, it, it ends up being sort of a half worn romance. And the, the, the conflict, the inherent dr- dramatic conflict for Guillermo del Toro is Blade is now in a position where this threat is so serious. These things are hard, h- fucking hard to kill. You have to kill them with sunlight basically. Um, yeah. a- a- and uh, that uh, these things are hard to kill and Blade will deal with the, the, the worst of his enemies um, to get the job done. But at the same time, he's also trying to, like, figure out more about the vampire system while he's working on it. Um, and he never quite trusts, um, he never quite trusts uh, the vampires or even um, Scud, which we'll find out later. Um, yeah, he seems more, in retrospect, when he kind of reveals where he was at, like, there, there's a little bit as you're watching it that you're like, okay, he's being a little too naive. Um, and then you realize that he had a more of a beat on what was going on, including Scud, than, like... Uh, than than what was revealed but you get why whistler's like what the fuck are you doing (laughs) yeah yeah and whistler and he also doesn't know what other trust whistler it's another forgotten plot point in the movie that um that they ended up kind of editing out and scripting out which is that whistler was supposed to whistler got cured of the vampire disease um did he really get cured no one gets clean from the bite in one night b um (laughs) (laughs) and um so he holy uh, cow did you just do a Marlon Brando impression? Because that was one hell of a line delivery. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Only our finest actor would 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 deliver would say a line so well. Thank you. Um, I was channeling one of my favorite actors, Marlon Brando. Norm from Cheers. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, but with all that said. Blade is, uh, they're at this club and the Reapers actually attack and there's a full on battle and they discover the, uh, inability to kill them with silver and they, this is where they figure out sunlight is the only thing that works. They lose a couple members of the team. Blade fights Nomak for the first time. Um, and then at the end of the movie, um, he'll end up actually defeating Nomak, but, uh, we have to, it wasn't say as he has to. He has to find the right opportunity because as soon as the sun comes up, Nomak fucks off. But the point, the important point is Nomak could beat him in a fight. He's very strong. He's very fast. He's just as vicious as Blade. Um, He's a different fighting style. He's more of like a brawler. Um, And this, I don't want to spend fucking 40 minutes on this, but like, do you guys know who Luke Goss is? Or maybe Ghosts? He's a, he's a twin, a twin German pop star. Yes. Yeah. So he's, he ended up. So him and Luke, Goss, him and his brother Matt Goss, um, ended up uh, in England becoming uh, <laughs> big, a big pop sensation called a Bros, and there was like <laughs> Bros mania and shit. Their album sold really well, and like one became super dysfunctional, and uh, Luke, who's in this movie, um, 
became a like a star of stage and like did grease and shit on stage and like really took his 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 uh vocal talent seriously uh there's a documentary that's supposed to be absolutely insane called bros after the screaming stops that i meant to watch before we got to this but i'll have to watch it before we get to hellboy 2 um because for some reason this guy became a a guy del toro was really into for a period of time but he's he's really good in this movie and hellboy 2 but he's super theatrical it's like they just took a theater actor and put him into a movie and didn't explain that like you need to calibrate to the movie because all of his line readings are so dramatic and Shakespearean and big. And it like adds this Shakespearean quality to the movie, but I could see somebody hating him in this. I don't know. What what do you guys think? I I, I think he's good. I think he's, he's pretty good. I think both him and Neela, Leonora Valera, I think. Oh yeah. They both have natural non- like non-English speaking accents mm-hmm. and they sort of cover them up in this in a way that's sort of like a an uncanny valley of non-accentitude uh, <laughs> and so it's a lot of their inflection is a little bit off I think he fares a little bit better than she does yeah. uh, which is a shame because I've seen her she's in the Taylor of Panama and she's actually really good in that but she's not trying to do like a different speaking voice than her natural speaking voice i think it's really her her only problem in the movie she has uh, a great look like yeah costume yeah. and like just her face like she just has like a very like good dramatic like look to her her costume includes this weird sort of um it it, it, it seems like medieval like it seems like the almost the origin of like the you know the term leather neck um was you know you used to wear more more armor to protect your neck um she wears this like gold gauntlet around her neck and then like has another gold piece on the back of her head and she has this like short kind of cropped modern kind of european haircut when it when it's her hair's down she's got bedazzled eyebrows yeah she has like she just has a really great look and she's a chilean actress she is just a great look, but she's, yeah, she's not, her, her line readings are not great in this movie. And she kind of, I think has this, yeah, I think you, you nailed it. She kind of has this non, non accent. It's like a little bit of her original Chilean sort of accent, plus probably some of her English vocal training. Plus, oh, now you're like Czechoslovakian or something, yeah. maybe Romanian. I don't know where Demoskinos, you know, uh, <laughs> turned you as a daughter, or you know, made made you a made you as a as a daughter, but um, somewhere in Eastern Europe. Yeah, she does kind of have a Laura Flynn Boyle vibe. Yeah, there's a little bit of an awkward energy there, which is kind of a shame mm-hmm. because, like, I think she is well cast in terms of like look. Yeah, and if they and if she were able to pin down the the performance a little bit, I think she could get there. I think Luke Goss in this movie and Hellboy Two is kind of like a, a del- he's like deliciously campy. He's very theatrical, yeah. but yeah. it's like delicious camp. But yeah, I I have to watch that documentary before we get to Hellboy Two, so we can have a forty minute park just on the Goss brothers and their that musical career. Awesome. Uh- <laughs> oh, and one other thing, because we were at the club for a little bit. This is something I learned from the DVD commentary. Uh, maybe you guys already know, but do you know who was originally supposed to be in that sequence? Michael Jackson. Yeah. Oh my god. It's why it is unclear. Here's the thing that was unclear to me. I didn't see her in the DVD commentary. Just some general research of the of the movie. The what I read implied they shot it and then scrapped it out. So what? What? Del Toro, and I haven't listened to the commentary in years, but this is how I remember it. He says that it was set to go. And then he he didn't show up to shooting that day and just backed out at the la- very last minute. 
and Michael Jackson's people were like, yeah, he does that. <laughs> and that was the, he was, he was going to be in the room. He was going to be in one of the rooms when Neela's upstairs looking in all the, like the hotel rooms above the club or whatever, uh, petting bags of blood. Like they were, like they were gerbils uh, or something. He brought his own blood. <laughs> yeah. He, <laughs> the, the, he, he, that was the problem. Like, he showed I'm up. already he the blood. doing this. He left it Put it in a movie. So, okay. So here's the other thing. They cut a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of insert shots in that whole sequence. Um, there's yeah. a chance that Michael Jackson would have shot a scene for this movie. The movie could have become a little controversial because at this point, Michael Jackson was a, an unconfirmed child molester. Yeah. And they would have cut the scenes either for, you know, that reason or for the pacing reasons they cut the other the other scenes. And, like, that would just be a weird black mark on this movie. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm very glad that didn't happen. And this came out the same year as Mike, as Men in Black 2, right? And isn't he in that? Oh, I don't remember. I forget what it sounds like he showed up that day. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was like, really he was really trying hard at the marketing for his last album, Butterflies. <laughs> I'm gonna appear in all the genre sequels. <laughs> that is weird, right? Uh, but yeah, that's weird. that that is how I remember is that yeah they and they on the deleted scenes they have a lot of those insert shots, but they don't have that one. And Del Toro's like, yeah, we wrote it, we were ready to shoot it, and he didn't show up. Is how I remember it, but I could be yeah. just making that makes sense because it is the way that it's written. As like a nugget of information is that they had a Michael Jackson cameo, but ended up scrapping the whole scene due to pacing issues. Pacing which, issues, gotcha. Which which implies that they have it somewhere. Yeah, it does. And like, does Michael Jackson like vampire movies? Is this like an extension of his his, his interest in horror movies from I mean, Thriller? Like, who knows I, Michael Jackson to reach out to him in two thousand two, an era where Michael Jackson is famously erratic? Like, yeah. who? Who who made that happen? Sorry, who almost made that happen? <laughs> this is a pretty I mean, big question. For, if you listen to like the Simpsons commentary, it was probably Michael Jackson watched Blade and was like, "I want to be in the next Blade." Movie. Yeah, he's, like, he has a very he, linear he just wa- he just watches shit and is like calls people to like write songs for things he likes and I'm gonna say weird dude. I don't know if weird I'm dude. going out of limb there. Whoa, weird dude. whoa okay, hot well, take. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we can edit that out, Aaron, if you want. Uh, <laughs> I also don't want to speculate why Michael Jackson would be interested in a culture where age has no meaning. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yikes. I, um, I will to, 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 to get away from that uh, nugget of information. Uh, the one visual I really like in this sequence. Well, there's, there's two. The, the cool thing about this movie is that there's so many like fun effect visuals every couple minutes, like sort of like a, like even like some of the '80s splatter movies, where it's like we need to do a cool effect every couple of minutes, you know. There's the one where Donnie Yen stabs the Reaper into the wall with a sword, yeah, and he climbs up like an insect, like splitting the bottom half of his body, and like his oh, trails so tore out. So good. And then when there's when they cut off the top of Priest's head when he's about to turn with the sword, and you just see like the top half of his head and his eyes still blinking. It's a yeah. it's a great it's a great image as well. It's a great image, and the the scene where Ron Perlman is executing, they've already lost a member or two of the squad. Yeah, and they're in the sewers doing because they realize daylight's the only thing that can kill them. Yeah, Ron Perlman is executing one of them, and he stakes um, one of them to a wall, and then he um, uses the flashlight to 
uh, burn its face off because they usually will run away from the light. But since this thing is staked to the wall, he can actually finish the thing off. And it just shows you the difficulty at, at killing these things in a way that like, it's, it's, it, I, I think this movie's greatest corollary is aliens. Like, yeah. Um, it's, it's in some ways, um, it's in some ways more of a horror movie and less of a horror movie. Um, so like, uh, it's more of a horror movie in the sense of like the threat is larger. There's more of them killing them, you know, um, is, is, is a little bit more of a, a difficult task, like in, in terms of like, they can't use their weapons for long periods of time and they're running low on ammo, but like they have so much ammo they have they have flashlights and they have these flash grenades but it's just not enough like it's not enough to deal with the sheer sheer uh mass of them and these reapers act like they, they refer to them as crack addicts um and this sort of this idea that vampires are sort of what aaron was referring to this idea that vampires are these sort of um <laughs> sophisticated if not in the classical sense, like Demoskinos, or actually Demoskinos was originally, and they shot some scenes with him with long hair to make him look more like almost like a Bram Stoker's Dracula style, like decadent Romanian prince kind of guy. Even though I'm sure he's Greek based on his name. Um, <laughs> the uh, they shot him with long hair, and then they redid those shots with him bald because I think it just the look fit better. Um, it definitely fits Magnolia's style more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do think he looks he looks too much like Nomak. Like I wish there's a little bit of visual difference between them, but uh, right. And Nomak has a great look. Yeah, Nomak is is scary to look at. Like all the vampires have translucent skin. You can see the veins in there, but Nomak they added extra effects to the eyes and they made his teeth more. um, I think they they applied some sort of caps or something to make his teeth look more like razory. But they don't hide the performance under there. Like, it's a very big performance that shines through the makeup in a way that, like, kind of reminds me of classic Hollywood in a way that I, I love. Yeah, definitely. But, yeah, so so there's awesome sequences in the club involving um, – I think I think the music in this movie is pretty great. There's a, there's a great sequence as well. Like, speaking of this is a horror movie, there's a great sequence where they're all walking into the club. And I think it's like a most deaf song is playing. Yeah, yeah. And, and Massive Attack. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's good. It's it's good shit. It's good shit. The soundtrack to this movie is is pretty is pretty good. It's it's, it's actually far far more diverse than the first movie, yeah. which had more of like some kind of funky tracks, and then it had techno, and it was kind of just those two modes. Hey, this still has Crystal Method, the name of the game at the climactic fight. But Peter, we're not at the climactic fight yet, so let's get there so we can talk more about other. <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's just so hard. Um, so um, they they get out of the they get up they get out to club. Um, and they need to uh, reformulate like a strategy before they go into the sewers. They find that they are all the reapers are living in the sewers beneath Prague, and they need to uh, get in there, uh, blow up the nest. And so, I do like that they, you know, at first they're like, "There's probably twelve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their their speculation on how many there are is is wildly fucking off. <laughs> um, but they come up with they they go down there and they give them all. Um, Flash grenades, which of course, um, you know, these UV flash grenades, which of course uh, do not, they'll, they'll kill everybody there except for Blade and Whistler. Um, so um, they get down there and they find out a member of the party has been bitten 
which kills two more members of the party. Then uh, there's sort of a, it's not quite the classical definition, but there's sort of a murder-suicide. So three people in the party die immediately. They start getting swarmed by them. And there's these awesome, it's just like, it feels like the interior of a body. These like shots of these these Prague sewer tunnels because they just like, they're rounded and and, and foggy and everything's kind of wet. Like it feels like you're standing in a piece of anatomy itself. Um, It doesn't feel industrial. It feels, it feels gothic and maybe a little bit alive. Um, and there's this grand fight. And uh, at the end of it, they blow up this massive light pack to uh, eliminate all the, the Reapers. And they kill all of them except for Nomak. And it leaves, uh, of the original blood pack, all it leaves is Reinhardt, who is sort of the informal team lead, but gets shoved, sh- shoved aside when Blade takes over. Um, and uh, Nisa. Um, who get burned and blade at this moment gives Nisa some of his his blood um, sort of showing their bond has has grown and it's gotten more intimate um, and it's sort of reflecting on stuff from the first movie where um, blade was fed um, from Karen's arm to like make him better Um, they are abducted by the vampire nation um, and they find out that they are making, trying to make the Reapers were just a, an introductory, or, you know, an inter- intermediate step that ended up getting out of the lab. They find out that Nomak is actually uh, Demoskino's son and Nisa's sister. And they're actually working on a new, like, Reaper 2.0 or whatever, um, which is hopefully easier to, to work with and will be. Yeah, they figured out the silver and the garlic stuff. They got some stuff to work on. It's some cool dark science shit. Yeah. And they're working on, they're working on the next phase which is uh you know is, is uh resistant to sunlight as well which means um they they need some blade blood to get that done i don't i don't think they're going to be able to get past stake in the heart though because th- that kills humans <laughs> <laughs> it's just grossly impractical that's not yeah that's not a specific vampire weakness that's most things weakness uh yeah i mean getting stabbed right in the fucking heart would would yeah. i think take care of most problems yeah Got a, a triple thick rib cage. That's what that's what they're gonna get. <laughs> the next ones just have the next ones are just in body armor. They can't move that fast. Yeah, why but... don't they wear night shit? What like just wear night armor? Hell yeah. Um It works yeah. really well as a pun for your whole deal as a vampire anyway. <laughs> yeah. And and like uh you know, we find out later Nomak kinda wants to die, but whatever. Um Nomak invades the compound. Blade discovered, or, you know, Blade is told that Scud betrayed him, so he murders Scud, and Blade starts getting drained, um, and Whistler escapes his interrogation. For some reason, doesn't immediately kill Reinhardt when he's on the ground. Um, yeah. One of those comic book movies where they're like, no, 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 Reinhardt needs to get to this really rad sequence later where he's shooting at Blade, and then Blade cuts him in half. Um, that's why Reinhardt lives, is so he can get cut in half in five minutes. Uh, Blade ends up murdering, uh, murdering Reinhardt, and he gets supercharged because he's so drained with blood. He ends up falling in one of Demoskinos' blood pools. He and that, that Reinhardt murder, I just gotta say, that's my last moment of theatrical goodness. And it's, it's, because he, first of all, Reinhardt starts with this, like, very, like, white trash neo-Nazi, like, what my father said before he killed my mama yeah. was sometimes you gotta, do, uh, what, what I gotta do everything myself or whatever. And then Blade catches the sword that he's about to swing at him and says, yeah. can you blush? And cuts him in half and like brings back the, so the racial joke at him. Yeah. And 
Chris Christopherson is at the top, and he goes, hey, Blade, and he throws his sunglasses at him, which Blade catches perfectly between two fingers and puts them on his head, to which someone stood up in the theater and yelled, that's my boy Wesley. And it was, <laughs> and it was the yeah. most. It was like fucking everybody stood up at that moment, like screaming. Yeah, it was it's so. It was it's the best so thing. good. <laughs> I love that shit. Yeah, that's amazing. Great. And like not I, like like something that's like thoroughly cheesy, but packaged within something that's so much fun that all you can do is have fun with it. It, it felt a little like reminiscent of the Raiders gun gag, right? Like here's this bit. You know, he just killed all these other guys. Yeah, this guy who's been like. An asshole, but also a little bit one step ahead of Blade the whole time in a frustrating way. Like, you expect a big you fight. You expect, like, the fight that yeah. we get with Nomak here in ten minutes. Instead, he just catches the sword, says something cool as shit, cuts him in half, and then he gets the sunglasses. Like, it's great. It's perfect. Awesome. More movies need to learn that lesson. Yeah. And then we launch into the best fight sequence in the movie, which is Blade just, like, effortlessly killing all these security guards, yeah. smashing in their visors, stepping on their heads, doing drop attacks. This movie infuses, like, wrestling DNA yeah, a in a way that I really love. Um, there's a lot of, like, what's the, what, there's a move where he, like, <laughs> he basically falls down with the guy, but for some reason it hurts the guy more than him. Yeah, he um, suplexes the last guy. Yeah, it's so it's so good, dude. He steps. There's a great shot of him stepping on one of their. There's a great shot where he steps on one of their heads, and then it's the they're on glass floors because it's this industrial complex, and you see just blood and glass clank into blood and glass and crunch it. It's such a, it's it's so good. It's all practical. It's all practical effects. It's all Wesley Snipes just like using um his fists, his his speed. And these uh, electrical batons to absolutely destroy guys. At one point, he shoves an electrical baton right through someone's fucking head. Like, it's 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 the best fight sequence in the three movies, yeah. um, and one of the best fight sequences I think Wesley Snipes ever got to be part of. And the um, moment, the moment at the end of that fight sequence where the music cuts out, and then he pops up from the bottom of the frame, like it's like a comedy. Yeah. it's so ridiculous, and it's uh, it cracks me up every time. The first movie has more joke jokes, but this yeah. movie does have the little, like little silly moments where it's yeah. just Blade fucking around, and that shit is so good because like Blade is largely a miserable character and kind of hates himself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and is filled with guilt and, and rage, and then the moments where Blade is actually like having a good time is it's jubilant it's yeah like, i think he smiles like three whole times in this and you believe it every time oh oh he makes fun of uh norman Reedus because he won't open up the reaper's jaw with his yeah. bare hands and he goes oh, yeah. Sissy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it, it has it has you're right it has less of the one-liners but it's still I, it wasn't as devoid of comedy as i uh remembered it being yeah the first movie has more like more things that i was like cackling at but this movie has has moments that like i find funny in in their own unique kind of way if this if this was the movie that had how come some other fuckers always trying to ice skate uphill it would be a perfect movie (laughs) but unfortunately that lines in the first one uh uh, jeez there's another i you probably remember the line we talked about a little bit where there's just a great like. Are you kidding me, motherfucker? Yeah. Oh, like, there's, a, there's a great something. Like he's that. about I mean, to shoot a cop in broad daylight, and he goes, "Oh, oh fuck me, suck this, motherfucker!" He's about to shoot a. <laughs> he's about to shoot a cop in broad daylight, and it's such a good laugh line. Yeah. This does. I mean, this does have some of Goyer's fun, like 
weird plays on words, which I don't think he ever did as well as as this. But like the when Chupa says to to Whistler, "Listen, shit kicker, you're one cut hair away from hillbilly heaven." <laughs> like who, who who comes up with this stuff? It's wild. I know. I I I love that. I love that line because it's like it, it's like vulgar poetry. But yeah, he isn't like full of it. But like I. That, that like weird vulgar poetry that that drips out of this movie at times is just lovely, and I think yeah. Chris Christopherson gets a lot of um, <laughs> a lot of great lines when he calls he calls Reinhardt a fucking nipplehead. I love that. That's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also think so. You know, he defeats Nomak. I I didn't remember it all that well, and so I like it was setting up all the beats that after Nomak kills his dad, that he lets his sister live. I was genuinely surprised, I, guess, I suppose, again, when he just, uh, yeah, eats his sister. I think they could have closed the gap on that a little bit more and been like, whether you're ready or not, like, you're, you are my family and I have to take you into this. Like, yeah. you're, you're going to become, yeah. you know, the next. Like, I think, like, they could have bridged the gap a little bit more than instead he's just like, sister, what's up? Anyways, I got to kill you. I like it. It is, it is very surprising. Like, because the whole thing is, like, she, you know, she kind of let him in, right? Like, she's, you kind of expect this idea of, like, hey, we're both victims of a shitty father. And and he's like, yeah, no, fuck you. You're a vampire, and I don't like vampires. <laughs> it's good. I, I liked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All I, movie beats tell you that they're brother and sister. She, she splits with her dad to side with him because his dad did shitty stuff. He's this this person who's basically can't live because, like, his infection and his need for blood, the way he's been engineered, essentially a, stops the idea of an existence that has some sort of truce with vampires or humankind or anything else. So, like, that's the classic. Like, I had my revenge. The vampire world is, is in better situation with someone who recognized that I was the victim, sided against her dad. Blah blah blah, and instead of all all those normal movie beats, he just is like, "Yeah, fuck you," and he he you know in, uh, does the injection thing into her. It's great. I loved it. Yeah, and he just straight up kills his dad. And one interesting note here is that like, so in the last movie we saw Udo Kier die, and Udo Kier gets like flayed by the sunlight when he dies, and it's all looks miserable. Vamp- vampires i think just die in whatever way the plot calls for which i kind of like which is yeah. like um Demoskinos, he gets blood out and he just drains and then until he literally cracks but he's like you know probably a two or three thousand year old vampire that makes sense yeah, no, right? yeah normally vampires don't bleed out yeah yeah it's that kind of makes sense way for them to and, die. and then when she dies when nisa dies so nisa's infected she says you know i want to die a, a human it's a very common trope from this kind of movie yeah, I've always wanted to see the sunrise, right? Always wanted to see the sunlight. Um, very common trope from vampire movies as yeah. well as, you know, vamp- uh, zombie movies. Like, I'm infected, but I want—I don't want to become a zombie. Um, Some, so they hold, uh, hold each other and uh, experience the, the um, sunrise together. And that's that's Blade 2, basically. He comes back at the end of the movie as, like, a quick little coda to murder one of the vampires. He left as a loose end uh, at the beginning yeah. of the movie. But, you know, great coda. Yeah, it's a great little codex. You Didn't forget about you, asshole. It's good. And it's also, like, not, like, opening up a new can of worms. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's basically a stinger that they leave at the end of the movie without making it a stinger, right? It's right. just, like, a cute, cute little joke. Because before, stingers were, like, 
not before they were a thing, but before Marvel movies made it just like every movie has to have one now. You know, one thing uh, as we get into moments that we want to talk about, uh, I don't think we gave enough uh, enough time to appreciate how good uh, when the ninjas come in that when he turns on the the backing lights, like it's you know for plot reasons, it's because it's UV light and it'll kill them, but it looks cool as shit. And the the robotic like apertures of their goggles yeah. open and close. That's so that's so awesome. That is so. that is um that's straight out of uh, Del Toro's like design book. Um, some of that stuff is shared on the DVD, but he he just nice. wanted them to look very anime like. And also, um, he he mentions that's the thing that Magnolia uses a lot, which is these small red eyes, these solid red eyes in the dark. Um, and it's it's sort of Magnolia's influence and 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 uh, Del Toro's influence blending together into making this sort of like modernized anime superhero manga comic book thingy where like it's not just that like they're ninjas so they're cool it's that they're these like modern tech ninjas that are using these techniques because like that they've trained and this is the best way to kill blade and they get pretty close and uh but yeah i i I agree i think those kind of fights just absolutely roll and i want to talk about um just the weird vampire world building they do in this like at the beginning we're in a different version of the vampire world for some reason, the vampires have blood cocaine. Did you catch yeah. this? Yeah. Oh yeah. Like they're just they're like, well, I want cocaine, but it can't just be regular cocaine. <laughs> it needs to also give me my necessary nutrients. That's one of those things too that theoretically could exist in real life. I guess. I mean, it feels like if I like chopped like fried chicken skin into cocaine and snorted it. Like I don't know how I'm how I'm really <laughs> consuming that. Yeah, you have to make sure you crush up your your your. your... You I mean, it's got to be a fine powder. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there was a time where I feel like in like the mid two thousands, where I'm, I, when people's entire identity was bacon. I'm sure there was some like bacon cocaine. Some dude bros had at a barbecue on the like we crushed it up and it's bacon cocaine. <laughs> that all sounds like it burnt a lot. <laughs> yeah, it also it all sounds it all sounds miserable except for the cocaine part. Uh, also, and twins. <laughs> do vampires like do they get anything out of other vampires? Blood? I guess they do because Neela drinks Blade's blood at the end. Because oh, but he's got daywalk. He's got daywalk. Uh, I guess because I'm it. thinking about the two people at the club that put razor blades in their mouths and then start making out. Like what? I mean, they must, right? Yeah, like, I, I don't know. So. I just think it's not it's not classical vampire rules where it's like eating anything will make you violently ill. eating anything yeah. or you know Lost ingesting anything style. or drinking anything will make you violently ill. Like um you know Dracula famously is like I never drink wine. Like I think those rules are out the window uh, in in this this universe. And also like they might not get sustenance from drinking other vampire blood but they get something out of it yeah it's sort of like i mean it's like empty calories you can make the same argument like people have sex for non-reproductive reasons like sometimes people also eat for non-food reasons like speak for yourself sinner (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i mean you're right though because like common vampire stuff is there's no sustenance right like that's we've talked probably more about daybreakers than anyone has in the last 10 years peter in the last few weeks covering these movies uh but uh that's the whole thing with daybreakers right like they're running out of too many vampires and they can't eat fellow vampires the math is all wrong um they they don't have enough blood bags which we'll talk about blood bags next week also oh Um, oh man well we talk about blood bags 
in three weeks. <laughs> and so you're also- doing a Michael Jackson podcast? Is that... <laughs> <laughs> we we're gonna turn into a true crime podcast on whether uh, the blood bags that he was gonna be rubbing up against came from his house. <laughs> they were all they were all there was there was many chimpanzees. It wasn't just bubbles. Yeah, in a sh- in a shocking twist, all the blood came from the original cast of Leave It to Beaver. What does it mean? <laughs> so Michael Jackson came to my house and he said, "I want to sample some of Bobo's blood." And I said, get your own, Michael. <laughs> yeah, uh, the joke in that was that Reagan also drinks, uh, you know, blood from. from oh, Reagan's definitely a vampire. Yeah. Did you see that guy? He's not a vampire. I mean, symbolically, yes. Also, literally. <laughs> I've, I've also, I've, I've been thinking a lot about Blade. And I was like, well, what if they made Blade comics good? Um, and. I mean, they might. I'm, I'm going to try, like, the after blade trinity stuff where it seems like they they might kind of get it together but it isn't like it fundamentally the sense that i get from as they started to incorporate uh blade into like marvel outside of the tomb of dracula is that they just didn't know what to do with him so <laughs> like, they're like wait is there vampires everywhere in the marvel universe i don't know dude maybe Maybe he has a space program. He so Blade, with. Blade is very important in Marvel Comics, like right now. Uh, I don't, is anyone Te- teasing him being like a, an Avenger? Right? Yeah, he's an Avenger. But the current like event in Marvel is Heroes Reborn. Have either of you read that? No, no. Is this the one where he's like the mayor of some? He's the sheriff of Vampire Town or something? Well, no. This is so. This is it's like a it's like an alternate universe. I think it's like post Phoenix. Where the world was recreated, where in a world where the Avengers never forget, never existed, but Blade is the main character, and he's the only person that remembers the previous world. So he's oh, he's the one that's trying to like save reality, uh, and it's it's like the the main event in Marvel Comics right now, which is kind of interesting. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, I'm definitely I'm definitely not there. I'm I'm doing a full read through of Marvel Comics, and I'm in the 70s right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I did jump ahead. Uh, I may I may try to skip ahead, but no, I it was but it was interesting in like the 90s, yeah, yeah. Uh, early 2000s stuff. The yeah, they didn't they, do anything. They clearly were like, yeah, I I don't know. I guess he meets Spider Man, does he? Yeah, I guess so. Like it 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 feels like they just. They, they had some trouble integrating him into like the superhero dynamic yeah. or obviously even though even though the those tomb of Dracula comics technically is, exist in the Marvel Universe it's it's not it's trying it's not trying to build as part of a, a mythos yeah. it feels like blade would fit really nicely in less with the core Avengers and more with the, the side Avengers like Daredevil yeah um and, and and you know obviously punisher isn't in the avengers but like punisher and daredevil i feel like they fit more with blade not just the maturity level but the idea of like boots on the ground sort of like let's fix an urban landscape style um thinking and the idea of like p- giving punisher civil silver bullets and then blade like going in with a sword just feels like a no-brainer as a comic i'm, I'm curious if that's ever happened it does it does kind of feel like we got to take down the underworld yeah and corrupt cops yeah and the system yeah <laughs> and vampires what <laughs> wait your your thing sounds big like should we be focusing more on that like i hate these corrupt lawyers like rigging the system but th- there's a vampire world 
Like I, that's it. It just it feels. I I agree. Like it's aesthetically, like I, I was in England for a while. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but like I, I, the idea of Blade is like okay, like Blade and Daredevil teaming up because they find out that um, these forces of gentrification in New York are lit, aren't just that these these landlords aren't just you know theoretical vamp uh, vampires, theoretical vampires. They're, yeah, they're sucking the blood out of the city. Like the idea of like Blade teaming up, but those guys are like. Uh, even Blade teaming up with like Kingpin because Kingpin's business is is getting pushed off by like a vampire yeah. cartel. Like that sounds cool, right? Yeah, yeah. Go write it, Chuck Windig. <laughs> <laughs> I would need to know way more about actual Marvel comics to ever presuppose to write a comic book. But we were talking about the 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 world, and I really love the look of the Blood Pack and how they're super unique. One thing that Del Toro talks about is he's like in the second half of the movie, they're all wearing similar uniforms. This sort of uh, carapace armor and he's like they all needed to be readable from the neck up so like <laughs> he was like uh the thing that makes uh the thing that makes uh light hammer the huge guy with the hammer <laughs> makes him readable is that he's massive and he's bald but he needs to never be confused with reinhardt like those those two yeah. need to be on their own separate parts of the tunnel and like they, the the idea that design is driving plot decisions in this is very interesting to me though i can see it being very frustrating to somebody who's like these guys are so cool and then these guys get torn up yeah but it just reminds me of aliens where it's all all bluster it's all yeah guys. they even have like the same type of names right like priest versus bishop like Snowman. they have that same kind of yeah yeah and they, they get a lot of character work done through their their just visuals too like the the fact that uh light hammer and uh what's her face are like a couple you know, or yeah. uh, like little things like that. You just you get a lot from from just that introduction. Yeah, yeah, and and I think like the little moments of combat also really just like you get to see their style. You get to see how they emotionally react to scenes. Like the only character, the one, the only character that feels undercooked for me is Assad, and that's because Assad is right next to Nisa for most of the movie. Yeah, and he's just like he's just a loyalist, right? Yeah. he doesn't cause any trouble. He does the job. He's just a soldier, and like. I could have used a little bit more for him because he's like, he's like a, like a black vampire. He's, he's yeah. like a black vampire that works with Nisa. What's their relationship? Is he just supposed to be her bodyguard or does he, is there something else there? Not even romantically, but just like, do they see a kinship in each other? Like there's kind of not, there, there could be a little bit more sort of interconnected stuff the way Aliens has. But the fact that the team just gets torn to shit so quickly in the second hour um is is really like what i i like about this movie yeah. is that like it's it's it, it, it's brutal and unforgiving and you realize similar in a comic book sense like these characters were created so these characters can be destroyed yeah. these characters were not created so that there can be a a, a snowman spinoff um uh, these characters were created to show how dangerous the reapers are and if they don't kill nomak the world is dead and i think and it's funny i always like I forget when it was. It was it was sometime in college, like the fifteenth time watching this, where I, I re- like a lot of the rhythms in this is very similar to Star Trek: Wrath of Khan, in that it's like a it's a three act structure, but there's that little twist where like right around the halfway point, they actually meet the villain and get their sh- do the shit kicked out of him, you know. And it, it's it's prior to that yeah. like second act fall. It's they actually get like the stakes are set up in that they have to lick their wounds for a, a good chunk of the movie. Uh, and I think that's 
that's just a good way to to keep tension in a film. I feel like it is. It is, and it, it's 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 a really nice way to not do what a lot of these comic book movies end up doing, which is just um, kind of uh, keeping the the heat on at a low temp, a low simmer until you get to the third act. Yeah, um, this movie feels like they 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 throw themselves at the problem immediately. They find the the hive. I think within forty five minutes of the movie. Yeah. Um, and then from there, they're like, shit, like, how do we deal with this high? Yeah. And like, it all kind of falls into place. And it's funny, is this a two hour movie that does not feel like a two hour movie in the slightest? No. And I think it's because it's limited sequences and it's just wall to wall action. The pacing in this is better than any two hour action movie I've ever seen barring is what is Die Hard like 147 or something? Yeah. Well, even the, you know, we kind of talked a little bit how clunky it was that like, in the original Blade, there's, like, four moments where, like, Whistler keeps telling parts of his backstory until you have this, like, whole picture of Blade. And I love that after, like, the cold open, you just have Blade be like, here, you know, here's some quick bullet points. Yeah. Like, I'm a daywalker. My mom's killed by vampires. Like, I fight these things. It's my life's work. All right, we're into it. And the last, like, half hour especially, it's just, it's all, you know, you have the little exposition, like, oh, we created him in a lab, blah, blah, blah. And then from from that point until pretty much that final fight, it's almost all visual storytelling. Like there's very little dialogue. It's just it's fight. Let's see how this character gets from here to here, and let's you know let's do it and push this along. They actually cut a lot of monologues. The lawyer has a monologue to Blade about how they're going to turn him into you know um, Reaper Stew, um, and like we know that. Yeah, we're watching them drain out his blood. Demoskinos just explained his whole plan to the group. My only real complaint about this last, the last, uh, you know, half hour when they're in the compound, which by the way, the look of that compound is great. Yeah. It's like super modernist. It would blend into yeah. a city block. The only thing that really makes it stand out is the number of guards. And then there's an inner sanctum that's like Demoskinos's chapel. And that's really cool looking. That's like Del Toro to a T, like a big stone door. Oh, sorry. A big concrete modernist door opens up. And then there's an inner chamber that's um, all like, it's like a castle. Like it's a little, cha- mm-hmm. it's like a chapel. It's Demoskino's inner chambers. This is what he's more comfortable with. Um, but he he's also more comfortable with completely concealing his his exterior to the outside world. And that, that really speaks to the, the character who's like, in the internal, he's all old world. He's not a, he, 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 he's, he's all about, you know, blood and guts and making sure that, um, I, I, I'll cut any throat it takes, including my own daughters, to, to get where I need to be. But on the exterior, he's like, no, the vampire nation has changed. <laughs> We're a modernist corporation now. But in reality, he's, he's a dude. He's a we have a lawyer. robe who has fucking blood pools. <laughs> a human lawyer. <laughs> Barely. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's not that many court cases that are argued at night. <laughs> Like, what about Night Court? <laughs> yeah, but the, most of the sort of things... Bull, Bull does look a little bit for. like Lighthammer, actually, now that I think about it. He does, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Moose uh, looks a little bit like uh, like Hellboy. Um, but yeah, I uh, what... what uh, any other moments, or, can, or should we move on to some final thoughts here? Uh, I think that final fight between Blade and Nomak is pretty epic, um, and it's really brutal. Like... <laughs> Blade gets the shit beat out of him, and like when the death finally, you know, the final kill happens, like it feels almost like I, uh, like a, 
you almost like you know blade is gonna win but like you're like wait how does blade win this yeah (laughs) and it's more like wwe from the top rope type of type of stuff that's so much fun oh my god yeah the wrestling influences in this are so so wild like they're they're doing these i don't know any wrestling moves so i can't name any of them zach can you just tell me wrestling moves uh nomak gets a people's elbow out out of there i know that much hell yeah hell yeah the triple lindy i think that's one just kidding that's a a diving move from yeah i remember like the elbow (laughs) drop move i remember i remember like the the like uh flying up in the air and nomak is more of like a brawler like he has this like look you can't quite read his moves because he's wearing like hoodies and like an overcoat nomak has a really great visual look um and he has you can't quite read his moves but like when they land they (laughs) land hard and and blade is more elegant like blade is more like a a, a a fencer, yeah. Um, but blade even throws in like wrestling moves in this movie. It's like he's adapting his fighting style after fighting Nomak in the first fight. He's like adapting his yeah. fighting style to pick up on Nomak's style because he's like, I need to hit a little harder than I normally would. Yeah, Nomak's really got like what I would call like a Liu Kang style fighting. <laughs> A lot of jump up and multi kicks. You know, um, like let's be honest. Like Blade mostly has to just get like a tiny little knife, a quarter of an inch deep in one of these vampires, and then the fight's over. Yeah, so he's not used to somebody being able to actually punch him back that hard. Yeah, you use bullets most of the time. Yeah, I also was thinking about how uh, some characters have these big fuck off guns. Absolutely, nobody needs if they're fighting just vampires. Nobody needs anything bigger than a twenty two in this universe, right? Uh, no. Not really. <laughs> I was. It's for some reason it clicked in my head because like Scud has like two Desert Eagles, and I was like, "Do you just want it to look cool? Like, you, does you, Scud you, you, you want to look magnum cool? rounds yeah. in your hand? You don't need it. You don't need it at all." I mean, and in that club scene when they have these like silver machine guns, the collateral damage is is out of this world. It's it's vampire. I love how vampire much friendly crime. fire this yeah, there. It's wild. Because you know the, that's not going to really affect the audience perception of these guys, but it, it definitely like informs their character that they don't give a shit about who these people are. Like they, that collateral damage doesn't matter. There's so there's just so so many bullets flying around, especially Chupa. Just yeah, like that one shooting scene. down alleyways. He's like, you guys had your your thirty seconds to get out of here. I don't know what you want out of me. I do love the one uh, just about the Blood Packs characters that when they're in the sewer and there's the sunlight coming in through the, the grates on the top and Ron Perlman just sticks his hand out to see how long he can take it. And just It's a nice little oh, character yeah. moment. I love that. Great characterization. Yeah. I, yeah, I almost didn't, I thought it might come back where you could see how much he could he could do it, but it, it still works well as like a as like a little moment. Yeah, and with like the sadistic uh, of him you know, staking the guy and flashing him yeah. in the face before it's, it's all very consistent. Yeah. Ron Perlman is a, has a good, has a very good look and he has a lot of characterization and that's like who Ron Perlman is, right? He's like, like if he has a small role in something, he's going to make his mark, whether you like it or not. Yeah. 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 I love it. Um, and I, I think that, you know, uh, I just love a lot of the like horror sequences. I just mentioned Scud having like two desert eagles. The scene in the truck with him is great. Because oh, yeah. Terrifying. The last movie doesn't have anything like that. You also at this point kind of know that they can resist silver and garlic. So um, you're just thinking of like, oh, what if I were stuck in this metal box while these things just ran around me? He has to like hotwire his truck to get his lights going again. 
Um, yeah. And, and the, the the small reaper attacks, like where they kill the drug dealer and they attack the blood bank, like that. Oh, and he's like licking the blood off the glass that got stuck in his head. Yeah. Okay, so that's something that when I first saw this movie, I had a I was too young to see it in theaters, so I had a pirated copy off of Kaza or whatever. Um, don't don't worry, um, don't worry. I've bought this movie since in like three different formats, so I think we're okay. Um, I stole the DVD from Best Buy. I was in a I was in a stealing phase. I, I apologize to everybody. <laughs> you're, you're just gonna have to buy it on 4k whenever it gets restored I'm i will sorry. i will um i i also was looking to see if somebody had done a 4k restoration of this movie and they have not um but uh, i stole a copy from zach <laughs> <laughs> and then you paid the four dollars to have it on voodoo and then i logged into your account so i stole it from you wow um, yeah yeah, so I this was such a fun revisit because you know I I own this on Blu-ray. It was one of it was probably one of the first like thirty or forty Blu-rays I bought because it was one of those movies where I'm like I gotta rewatch this. Like it's still I'm now a Del Toro fan. I love the first one. You know I I need to find time to rewatch. And as many of us that collect uh, Blu-rays know, uh, one of the problems with buying it is it all of a sudden becomes a. <laughs> Uh, something that you just wait for some future version of yourself to get around to one day. Um, it's like the, there's no more scarcity for that particular item. So you, you move on to other things that, uh, is expiring from Netflix or whatever else in a, in a month. And so I, like, shame on me. I just never got around to rewatching it. So I was really excited to rewatch it. Um, it just in general, and uh, obviously, I you know I I don't I don't think I ever really mentioned to Peter that I hadn't seen it. I, I said I liked it, which is true, and I liked the Blade series. Man, I'm I'm really happy how much I walked away liking this movie because it was one of those things that I suspected I would, but also you know at this point I'm I'm it's 19 years removed from when this movie came out. You know, am am I gonna see that same special spark that you know to your point, Zach? It you know it hits you at the right time in this right moment and then becomes a favorite, uh you know peer you too and I yeah I fucking loved it I definitely will be rewatching this again not in nineteen years and uh yeah I can understand Peter why your inclination was to go watch that because I just want to see that scene of him like with this like at the top of a fucking guard statue of dead bodies of like and then it looks like almost a red carpet or flowing robes of of things coming down like it's it's gorgeous it's funny it's well paced it's uh yeah it's it's fantastic uh and i'm very interested uh now when we get to blade trinity in a couple weeks because i that one first of all it's general reviews on letterbox from mutual friends of all of ours is like one star. People fucking hate that movie, including yourself, Peter. And I remember being somewhat positive on it because even though it's silly and, and is not as good as the first two, I thought the the lore and the body bags and the plot stuff was like interesting enough to give it, I think, like three or three and a half stars. So, uh, but I'm wondering if like removed from expectations or removed from even coming off the first two and just going, yeah, whatever. It's it's another Blade movie. Maybe I'll enjoy it if I'll if I'll be positive. Yeah, I mean, I I probably hadn't watched this, even though I say it's my favorite movie in like seven or eight years. I want to say, uh, so I was happy to get an excuse to rewatch it. Also, because Chris Christopherson was like sneaking up on my most watched actors of the year in Letterboxd. Uh, <laughs> So I, I'm glad I had an excuse to keep that keep that going, uh, but uh, but yeah, it's great. It's so much fun, and I think I really, even though I can't remove it from that first theatrical experience, 
yeah, I think that does stick with you when you when you watch things subsequent times, where stuff that might not land the same way, you still yeah. you still get that sort of sense of oh, this is why this was so much fun then. Also, uh, Pete kind of like touched on it, but the soundtrack's really awesome, and I was really proud of myself when I first started listening to songs from it. I was like, wait, is this a is this a Judgment Night situation? Uh, and it turns out, yeah, it's the same music supervisor that did Judgment Night and Spawn, where he they combine techno artists and like rap artists. Yeah, right? so for this it was techno yeah. and rap. For Judgment Night it was rap and rock, and for Spawn it was techno and rock. So he's he's done all permutations of those three genres across three different movies. All great soundtracks. <laughs> yeah, all great soundtracks too. Especially, uh, yeah, that most F song is great. The Chemical Brothers is the only one that they didn't throw. Uh, a rapper into because they just they're like that well, song's that too was perfect. The chemical bro- <laughs> no, you mean the Crystal Method? Sorry, song? Crystal Method. That's what I meant. Sorry. Well, the thing is though that the that Crystal Method album was the album where they decided to go. Uh, let's have a guest singer or rapper for all the songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the Crystal Method had kind of got ahead of where the music supervisor. So I'm sure he was like, "Oh, perfect! I don't even need to add another group to this." Yeah, this is this is pops right in. But oh yeah, it's a great it's a great. Uh, uh, superhero movie, great sequel, and I'm uh, it, it's fun as like it's more than just a footnote for where superhero cinema is today. It's kind of a a good starting point after the first blade. Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree. And just jumping off the music point, like I the the score pieces in this, I think are really great. Um, Del Toro worked with Marco Beltrami again uh, in this movie after working with him in Mimic, and Marco Beltrami is one of those guys who like has a it's like Danny Elfman. He's like Danny Elfman. He has a very distinct style, but sometimes that style just fucking works, right? Um, and he was an Oingo Boingo. <laughs> <laughs> um, rhythm guitar. But uh, Marco Beltrami's score, he uses bells to indicate something like gross and kind of horrifying happened, like the bugs in Mimic. Um, and in this, it's like, you know, the uh, the Reaper's actually feasting. He'll use that kind of sound. And it, and it adds this kind of beautiful it's like a beautiful trash opera like this is the ultimate like um extrapolation of like a good b movie um where it it it, it, it at times it doesn't really aspire to be um you know an, a, a award-winning character piece about hunting vampires and the vampire hybrids in the sewers below prague um but it, it does aspire to be the best fucking blade movie that it can be uh, and it still can't help but infuse like this operatic theatricality at times that really like helps heighten moments and make them si- really sing in a beautiful way. And that's that's getting back to my my original point is that like Mignola, who did the you know conceptual work here, and he worked with with uh, Del Toro, and they got along really really well, and they toured around Prague together while they were figuring out what the movie's look was gonna be. Um, one of the Hellboy comics starts with a note. Um, basically of Magnolia reflecting on this trip they had together where they were just like looking at locations, trying to figure out what the looks of this movie were going to be before he got drawing. And, and, it, and, it, and it has that, the qualities of both of them, which is like an obsession with the Gothic and the grandeur and this sort of like um, this, this large side of opulence mixed with this grody disgustingness. And I think the character of Nomak is is that in a T. And I think there's a reason why he was this uh, Luke Goss was brought back for uh, Hellboy 2 Golden Army. Um because this idea of like um this gross vampire mutant freak giving these big theatrical campy speeches 
and it's it is like trash Shakespeare. Like he's he's this this prodigal son that's returned home, or he's this um, you know uh, abandoned bastard heir that's returned home to to you know tell his father what what he wants. Like it feels very Shakespearean at times, and. Uh, but Del Toro also knows that it's uh, alongside that he can't just have the Shakespearean elements. He also needs to like have something visceral, like Zach was talking about, something visceral and enticing that you can chew on in like every single moment. And I love that the movie never quite betrays any of that. And like what I'm asking for, if the movie from anything is just like a little bit more cohesiveness in like character work, because like, I like all the pieces here. I like the skeleton and and, and, and the, the meat of this, this monster. Um, and it's going to be fun to talk about what Blade Trinity would do um, with David Goyer. Who we'll talk a lot about next week because David Goyer is about to launch <laughs> an entire like a uh, campaign a decades-long campaign to ensure that comic book movies exist and he's going to be one of the lead creative voices in dc in dc comics uh after this um and what's interesting is it gets gets started off with blade trinity and ghost rider after the two blade movies um but Del Toro is off on his way, and Magnolia is it just runs right back to to kicking ass as as a comic book artist right after this, um, yeah. until Del Toro gives him a call and says, you know, we could make this Hellboy thing work. Um, <laughs> so that'll be what we're we're talking about later. Yeah, uh, Zach, thank you so much for joining us. We promise it won't be another five years before. You guess on the show, it will be four years till we respond to your next. <laughs> uh, but Facebook messages, uh, two days, emails, four years. That works. Uh, do you have? Uh, so thank you so much for coming on. Do you have anything to promote? Uh, not really. Yeah, I'm on Letterboxd at Zach Santucci. That's my full name, Z A K. Uh, but that's not really a promotion. That's just that's just places where I do things. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, well, we'll include that in our show notes. Um, but yeah, Zach, this has been so much fun. You're going to yeah, come back. It's been a blast. Like Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, you're going to yeah. kidnap me. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and then next week, so a slight change to what we, we talked about. We decided to do um, kind of uh, – we're gonna, basically going to wrap up July with Hellboy next week with guest Ryan Boland. Uh, yeah, so that's what's headed up. So Hellboy 2004, Del Toro. And Mignola uh, finally fully together um, as part of this month. So we're excited for it. Uh, and we will see you walking in the day <laughs> or night. Nobody walks in the day to the tune of Nobody Walks in LA. Ooh, nice. Great. Good.
listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on itunes i know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help and so every podcast wants that help so please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically they hopefully want to tune in and listen and thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years Uh, we really do appreciate you uh with kisses and smooches peter and aaron (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>